James. I am <clears throat> the discipleship education slash small group pastor slash sometimes I get bagels in the morning. <laughs> I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot of stuff. I'm happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Um, questions? I, uh, I pitched this, uh, this series to David um, as an open-ended series. We won't be doing a bunch of these in a row. Um, and I pitched it not out of uh, an abundance of material, necessarily. I didn't have a lot of stuff that I necessarily wanted to address. A few things. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I, I pitched this um, out of life experience, having raised two toddlers, currently raising a toddler, and getting ready to raise another toddler. We have four kids. Um, if you've ever been around a three-year-old, <laughs> the question thing is dead on. Um, sometimes the simplest questions have the most complex answers. My, uh, my three-year-old Jude, you'll see he's an absolute ball of energy. I'm really pretty certain he doesn't have an off switch. 90% certain that it is the grace of God that allows him to lay down and sleep at night. Because <sighs> he just goes until he hits the pillow and he's done. Um, he has recently discovered conjunctions. And if you are a fan of Schoolhouse Rock, and conjunction junction, those are, the, those are the words that we use to connect other words and phrases and clauses and words and phrases. And, yeah. Um, but he does this kind of nonsensically. So he likes to use and, occasionally throws in a but, even though it has nothing to do with the context of the sentence. He just likes to connect the ideas together. And so it'll, I'll come home from work and I'll say, hey, what'd you do today, buddy? Because he's real excited to see me. I'm, of course, really excited to see him. And then it starts. I woke up this morning and I came downstairs and I turned on Paw Patrol, but I went and got a breakfast bar and mom came downstairs and she brought Everly, but on and on and on. All I wanted to know was a brief overview of what you did today. And this is what I end up with. But he's adorable. And so I'll listen to the whole thing. Even if it takes 30 minutes, I'll listen to the whole 30 minute sentence. Our questions are kind of like that a lot. The questions that we ask are really simple. Um, man, but sometimes, if you ever sit in a staff meeting, you know, three seminary graduates in one room, ask simple questions like, what do you guys think about doing communion this way? Well, in the first century church. On and on and on. So we get these complex answers to these really simple questions. The first question I wanted to tackle today is one that I get a lot. Um, do I have to go to church? I, uh, my day job, I'm a, I'm a veterans benefit counselor at Tulsa Community College downtown. Um, so I don't spend all of my time working in the church. Um, people will generally find out that I'm a pastor at some point in a long conversation and one of two things will happen. One, I'm sorry that I came into your office and told you that horrible joke. 
it's fine, it's okay. Uh, you didn't know, and, and I'm not offended, we're good. <clears throat> or two, they'll say this phrase, I have a quick question. <laughs> okay. I bet not, but okay. And it's usually something like, I can't find a church that I like to go to. Do I have do I have to go to church? Look, let me tell you first off. We live in a great country. We belong to an amazing faith tradition. You don't gotta do nothing you don't wanna do. And that's absolutely amazing. As a matter of fact, it makes it even better that you're all here today because no one's forcing you to get up and come here. So the simple answer to the question, do I have to go to church? <laughs> no, you didn't even have to put on pants this morning. So frankly, no, you didn't have to go to church. I'll answer it that way sometimes, and generally it brings up a more refined question, a more pointed question, and it's really what they're getting at. Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Let me give you the short answer for that. And by the way, this is not credence to get up and walk out the door, but no. The short answer to this question is you don't actually have to go to church to be a Christian, and I'll explain that. Like if you've, if you've ever been to vacation Bible school or you've ever done an evangelism study or taken an evangelism class or grew up in church your entire life, you know that the church has developed about a thousand different ways to share the gospel message with people. According to the church, there's a thousand different ways to become a Christian. There's the uh, ABC method. There's the uh, good old Roman road. James Group Southern Baptist, so that's the one I know. There's the uh, color-coded bead bracelets where you walk people through the gospel message. There's about a thousand different ways to quote-unquote become a Christian. Looking at a bunch of these methods, I figured out it kind of boils down to three things, though. In order to become a Christian, one, we have to realize that we're a sinner. Because quite frankly, <laughs> you don't go to the doctor unless you're sick, normally. I'm sure some people go for checkups, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but unless I'm running a fever or there's a body part falling off, I frankly don't care to set foot inside a doctor's office. You have to know that something's wrong in order to want to fix it. We all know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I know that. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard that as part of one of these presentations at one point in time. So we know that everyone's a sinner. Sometimes people individually don't know that they're a sinner. But I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that... Uh, I can guarantee you that eventually people come to that conclusion that they need God in their life. So to become a Christian, first of all, you have to know that you've sinned. The second thing is that we have to accept salvation. That's a very, very complex phrase. The one phrase that I like to use, the, uh, or the, sorry, the, uh, the scripture that I like to use 
puts everything in a, in a nutshell. It's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And uh, he's giving an account of who he is. Um, Paul's asked a lot. Exactly, who are you? You speak with a lot of authority. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where do you get the right, essentially, to talk to us this way? And so there's this whole passage in chapter 15 where he's, he's basically giving his lineage. He's saying, look, I, I wasn't one of the 12 apostles, um, but I was visited by Christ, and, and I was asked to do these things, and I hung out with the apostles, and here's, here's, here's where I have authority. Um, this starts in verse 3. I'm going to back up just a little bit. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel presentation in about two sentences. It presupposes something from the audience. It presupposes that you know some things, um, which is why it takes a little bit of unpacking. <clears throat> First, you have to know who Christ is. He's talking to an audience that understands this concept of the Messiah, that understands the concept of the Christ. And so it presupposes, first of all, that Christ is a real person who walked the earth, who is fully God and is fully man. And it presupposes that you know that. He says that Christ died for our sins. It presupposes that this Christ person that we know came to earth expressly to preach but more importantly, to die for the sin that we know was in our life. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, that despite a physical death, he was supernaturally raised from the grave and sits today at the right hand of the Father. This verse presupposes a lot, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest this being your gospel presentation to someone who's never heard it before because it takes a ton of unpacking. But in a nutshell, this is the gospel. And so in order to be a Christian, we have to know that we're a sinner and we have to accept this message. We have to accept the gospel message. To be a Christian, the last thing that I've noticed is that you have to endure. It's good to know that you're a sinner, because like I said, if you don't know that, you don't know nothing. You accept the gospel message. You accept the salvation of Jesus Christ. Obviously, it's a very important part. But it doesn't end there. Paul goes on to write in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a, uh, a letter that he's writing to a protege of his, his missionary very close with this person. He, uh, Paul's at the end of his, not only at the end of his ministry, but at the end of his life. And uh, so Paul's writing, and he's passing on this information. It's called, it's one of the pastoral letters. So if you're ever looking, you know, don't hold me up against that. But, you know, if you're ever looking for what it takes to be a pastor, these are the letters you're going to look for. 
These are the standards. So 2 Timothy 4.7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul uses a lot of sports metaphors. Um, seriously. <laughs> a ton of sports metaphors. It actually spoke to his Gentile audience. Big fans of sports, those Gentiles. And uh, so he says three things there. I fought the good fight. Right? I finished the race. What he's talking about is his ministry. It's a struggle. If you've been with us since the beginning here at Thrive, it seems like a fight sometimes. God puts you in a ministry, and sometimes there are struggles, and sometimes there are things to get through, and it's difficult. He says, look, I, I fought the good fight. And he goes, I've run the race. And he's at the end of the race. I have kept the faith. Throughout the whole thing, that gospel presentation, he's believed it the entire time, the whole time. And that's what's necessary, because it's not good enough to start the race. You've got to finish the race. And if you don't finish it with everything intact, then what was the point to begin with? Does anybody notice a glaring omission from this three-step process to become a Christian? At no point in time did I say, you have to be here every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday evening, every youth event. I didn't say you had to be here for every serve opportunity, although I know my wife would say, please be. She'd love it if I got up here and was like, what Jesus said. No, but uh, you don't have to be here every time the doors are open. As a matter of fact, very specifically, it's omitted. Partially because up until about 200 years after the death of Christ, the whole concept of church wasn't anything like what we have today. You can't tell somebody to go do something that you don't know how to do. So part of the reason it's not here is because they just didn't have the same system. But the other part is because Jesus came here to give us a message and not a bunch of rules. I know that sounds really kitschy, but that's the truth of the matter. Truth of the matter is, too, there are a lot of really great Christians who don't go to church. And I know specifically they're um, very kind of colloquially, we call them hermits. Um, but right, right the first four or five hundred years of the, the history of the church, you had a bunch of believers that had stacks of scriptures and a series of beliefs and in order to essentially recreate Christ's time in the desert, they would literally go and find a place in the desert and sit by themselves sometimes for weeks and months and years and commune with God and read the scriptures. And they're definitely no less Christian than I am. It's actually a practice that's still practiced today. Um, it's essentially converted over into the monastic system, the system of monasteries, monks and nuns. Um, a lot of times people confuse that and they think of these like massive communities. If you've ever studied the life of a monk, you realize although they live in a large group of people, there is a lot of alone time. If you don't like spending time with yourself, this is not the place to be. It's still a tradition that goes on today. The Episcopal Church, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, of course the Catholic Church, 
participates in this tradition. Thomas Merton, a modern-day hermit. You may have heard, you may have heard of his books, *The Seven-Story Mountain* and *No Man Is an Island*, a collection of essays about love and about community. Ironically, from someone who spent a lot of time by himself. Thomas Merton's a great Christian. If you have a chance to pick up one of his books, do it. His thoughts on God, his thoughts on faith, his thoughts on theology are some of the best ever written down. Thomas Merton did not step foot in a church every Sunday morning. Some of the best Christians to have ever existed, quote unquote, don't go to church. So then the question kind of evolves, okay? No one's forcing you to. It doesn't appear that you have to. Why? Why do we get up in the morning? Why do we go to church? Let's start with this. What, what's a church, right? I don't mean to be reductionist. I don't mean to, you know, do a thought experiment. What is church? But I'm gonna. <laughs> Right? A church is a community of believers that have a common belief. Can we, that's a really nice loose definition. The Greek language uses a word. You've heard it here before. You're probably going to hear it again. It is used an awful lot in the New Testament. The word is koinonia. And it's hard to pin down a definition of that word. Because given its context, it can mean a bunch of different stuff. As a matter of fact, it's translated as participation, partnership, sharing, and fellowship. The concept of fellowship has been diluted in modern times. Um, I've heard, again, I grew up Southern Baptist, so fellowship was any time two or more were gathered with a casserole dish. Um, <laughs> That was a fellowship. Uh, I visited um, when Bree and I were first dating. Her her grandparents were Methodist. It was the first time I stepped foot in a Methodist church, and and uh, she was like, "We're having a fellowship in the basement," and I was like, "Yes, I haven't had cheesy potatoes in like two weeks." <sighs> but in the Methodist tradition, that usually just means cookies and coffee, and that's fine. That's where we're. We went downstairs and fellowship. No, but. Koinonia, the concept of fellowship, is probably, probably best defined by an author named Jerry Bridges who writes in a book called True Community. He says, koinonia is sharing a common life with other believers. It's a relationship. It's not an activity. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, and I'll, but I'll give you some examples. We, our, we are our relationships. So, Someone says, well, James, tell me about yourself. You know, I, you know I'm a Christian. I'm, I live in Oklahoma. Um, I don't say, uh, sometimes I husband, and then on weekends I father. Um, no. We are, we are our relationships. I am a husband to my wife. I am a father to my children on more than the weekends. Um <laughs> I'm there, I'm there. Um, you know, we say that a lot. I'm a, 
I'm a fan. No one, no one really ever says, oh, I, you know, I support the Eagles this evening. No, I'm an Eagles fan, right? That's what I am. That's my relationship to the world. Also, I'm a Christian. It becomes your identity. It's not just something you do. It's not just a place you go. It becomes part of who you are. I am a Christian. Look, it's important to share our lives with other believers. And it's not just because we're asked to, but because it helps. Here's another three-point list for you. I... uh, I was looking around to see exactly what it was that, um, that I could tell you guys about this. First and foremost example of the, the first churching that happened, Acts 2.42. It's the day of Pentecost, and we see this scene. The devoted, sorry, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, koinonia in the Greek. They devoted themselves to the teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Look, if for no other reason than it's our tradition and our heritage, that's why we go to church. Just like we say the Lord's Prayer, there are certain apostolic traditions that were put in place by the first fathers and mothers of this church, and we continue to do them today because they're a way to commune with God. It's our heritage. It's who we are. The next thing is 1 John 1 through 7. Or sorry, 1 John 1, 7 says this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let me go back. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Look, we come together in community. We come together at church to pursue fellowship because it keeps us on track. You, you do this with everything. If you think about your life, um, it's, why, it's why we have meetings at places of business. It kind of keeps us on track. We're all on the same page. The same reason you join a Facebook page for your favorite sports team, so you can kind of know what everyone's talking about and where the direction of the team is headed. We do these things together because it keeps us on track. Remember, one of the things we have to do in order to be a Christian is endure to the end, and a lot of us need help, us, I'm including myself, because frankly, I can't do it by myself. Meeting together like this, it helps keep me on track. The very last thing, and I'm going to read this verse to you, and you've heard this verse about a thousand times, but I cannot express to you the importance of this verse. It's Matthew 18, 20. He says, Christ, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Go to church because where God is. 
Like I said, we've probably heard that verse a thousand times. At times of trouble, times of despair. Remember, two or more are gathered in his name. We won't even finish. We won't even finish the phrase. Two or more are gathered in his name. Think about that. Like, where else in existence, in the universe, on this planet, can you tell the almighty creator of the universe, Sunday morning I'm going to be here. And I want you here too. You have a standing date with God. God, the creator of existence, not the creator of the world, not the creator of the universe, the creator of everything that ever has been, everything that is, everything that will be, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. God shows up on Sunday. Where else can you do that? You don't have to go to church. I promise you, I'm not going to show up Sunday afternoon. Where were you at? Because <laughs> I love you, but that's your choice. Because if, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be mean, I'm not saying this to be a jerk, if you don't want to show up on Sunday morning and commune with the creator of the universe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's here. He's here. We should be here too. No one's going to make you come. But God will be here. I promise you. I promise you. If you come here seeking him, he'll be here. <laughs>